the Bible tells us that we are in for some very difficult times. If we are living in the last times, which we certainly have a lot of reasons to understand that we are, we're in for a very tough time ahead. It's not going to be as easy as it seems like it's always been. Most of us have lived during very good times living here in this country. Some have come to us from other countries where it has not been so good. But the last 75 years have been pretty good for most of us. Yes, there was the problem of Vietnam and some individuals, perhaps right here, probably right here, uh, saw some of that. But for the most part, we live in a country that's relatively safe. It's not going to be that way forever. And it's sometimes difficult to see how God is going to use such a small group but dedicated group as us to be able to reach the world. And yet, the scripture says that uh, this gospel will go into all the world as a witness to under, unto all nations, all the nations. And that's before the end will come. And in order to carry the gospel, the true gospel, we have to know what the true gospel is. And there are many other reasons that we understand that we've been called to do something that is rather significant. It's hard to, uh, you know, look at, or when we look at uh, past servants of God, we find that they too were small. None of us have been the Walmart of religion. We've all been very small and very insignificant up to a certain point. But at some point in time, that proper moment comes, and God brings his servants to the foreground. One such servant was a man by the name of Jeremiah. And today we'll look at his life to see how God used him to do a great work, a work that we can still see the effects of to this very day. Let's turn over to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to go through a lot of uh, scriptures today, mostly in Jeremiah, not entirely, but pretty close to it. Let's turn to the first chapter and let's look at what it tells us about Jeremiah when he prophesied, how long he did, and to what group of people he prophesied. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, that will become significant a little bit later, Anatoth. That's where he uh, was from. He was among the priests there. It was a priestly uh, city there. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Now, that's pretty specific. The 13th year of, of his reign. And it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So we find that his prophecies took place over a period of about 40 years. Uh, the 13th year of Josiah, he reigned 31 years, so he had 18 years there. Jehoahaz, three months, Jehoiakim, 11 years, Jehoiachin, three months, and Zedekiah, 11 years. Total of about 40 years that he prophesied over that period of time. 
Now notice in verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is an important scripture for a lot of reasons. One is what Mr. McNair was talking about. We have a world today that is on a slippery slope to uh, killing babies even after they're born, which has already been done. Uh, you know, they sometimes they have an abortion that's botched, and children survive the abortion, and sometimes they just let them die or perhaps put them to death, and sometimes they actually survive. And there's at least one very famous survivor of abortion out there speaking out, has a number of problems uh, as a result of it, but it, the mind is, is there, and she's able to speak out concerning it. But we've come to the place where we don't realize that God has created us in a very special way and that life is sacred. Life is precious. And so here was a man that God said he formed him before he was formed in the womb. I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. When does God start working with each one of us? It's a, it's a question that I don't think that most of us know for sure. When was it that God began working with you? When did he start working with me? One of these days we may find out that he started working with us long before we heard the truth. But he worked with us in various ways. He says, verse 6, Then he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Eternal said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. You're going to do it. You're going to go to all whom I send you. We have Jonah as an example of what happens when you don't follow God's instructions. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Eternal. I think that's a rather interesting comment there, because it's, a, it's instruction for all of us in reality, that we are not to fear what men can do. We are to fear God. You might hold your place here, but I'm going to go over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now we see here that he quotes from Isaiah, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. As we just saw, God told Jeremiah not to be afraid of their threats. And so fret, uh, their, um, their, their threats would come. Let's go to Isaiah, the 8th chapter, and verse 11. Isaiah 8 and verse 11. It says, For the Lord spoke thus, to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people saying do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy nor be afraid of their threats nor be troubled the Lord of hosts him you shall hallow let him be your fear and let him be your dread 
He will be as, as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. So it shows here that God had to tell Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Peter told the people of his day, do not fear men. Don't fear the threats that they make. I wonder if we realize just how much that's going to happen in the future. How long? I don't know. But we all know that threats will come. In Jeremiah, the third chapter, let's pick it up there again. We're going to see that he speaks to more than just the Jews of his day. Most people think that everything in the prophets was for the Jews. And yet you and I know that there were two houses. There was the house of Judah, which are the Jews, and the house of Israel, which were the other tribes of Israel. And especially the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which were uh, the sons of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, uh, God spends a, a great deal of time uh, talking to uh, those uh, individuals, and we know who they are, at least in a broad general sense. But here in, in the book of Jeremiah, we find that he is prophesying not to the Jews only. Uh, the third chapter is full of this. It says, uh, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? And then in verse 7, the last part, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So there's a recognition of those two houses even at that time. And it talks about how one had been divorced and the other one was going to be before it was over, as it were. Uh, it says in verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. Talking about a time in the future. There's a time, verse 17, when Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it. So it's talking about a time in the future, and when it speaks of the house of Judah and the house of Israel, it's clear that both houses are in existence at that time, a time yet in the future. Let's notice the fifth chapter. Jeremiah 5, verses 1 and 2, Run to, to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in her open places if you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment who seeks the truth. Who seeks the truth. You talk about truth falling in the streets, as it says later on in, in uh, well, actually in the book of Isaiah. Uh, truth is falling in the streets. It's hard to find a time when there was more fake news on all sides, more corrupt news than there is today. Nothing but lies. And we expect, I guess, our, our politicians to lie. We just take that for granted, that they're going to lie to us. Over in uh, verse 10, it says, Go up on the walls and destroy, and do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Eternal. Now, he's talking primarily there in the sense that he is prophesying to the Jews at this time because the house of Israel uh, is gone into captivity already. But he's talking here in, in duality. The things that happened at that time were a type of what's going to happen later on. 
And so he refers to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But he's talking about going up on the walls of Jerusalem, which would have been the Jews there. They have lied about the eternal and said, it is not he... Is it not? It is not he. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. So we find that two houses are involved here. Let's notice verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord. So this is a reference to the end of the age. In those days, I will not make a complete end of you. And then verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. So we find that this is not just for that time. It's not just for the Jews. The duality here is that this is a message for all of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and it's for That time, of course, for the Jews, but it's talking about a time yet in the future. Notice the 10th chapter, the 10th chapter and beginning verse 1. It says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Now, I've skipped over a lot of references there, but I think it should be evident and clear that he's talking about more than just the Jews and Jerusalem, and it was more than just that day alone. We have so many prophecies that are clearly in time and nature, and we'll see uh, a very powerful one here as we go through. Let's go over to the 16th chapter, because Jeremiah, who had been called by God even before he was born, was in for a difficult life. God gave him instructions that would be very difficult for the average young person today to handle. Notice in Jeremiah 16, 1, it says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Wow. Now, if you're thinking, you know, if he he prophesied for 40 years... And if he were even 20 years of age at the time, or let's say 30, that would take him to 70. And and uh, that's not when he died. That's just when his commission that was more public had, had ended. Uh, you have to realize that he was a relatively young man when this instruction was given. And he said, I'm a youth. God said, don't call yourself a youth because I've chosen you. So... What exactly his age was, we could speculate, but we don't know. But we do know he was a very young man, to say the least. And he says, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Now, that goes against our own nature, the desire to have family. And he says, you shall not have sons or daughters in this place. It doesn't say that he couldn't later on, but he would have been an old man by the time... Uh, he had a wife or children, if, if, if he indeed he did at a later time. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begat them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. So he was to be assigned to these people. Why it would not be the best thing to have children at that time, I guess you might say. 
God was, was warning him. He didn't want him to, to have wife and children during the stressful times. Even the Apostle Paul said because of the stressful times, there are times when it's best not to. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that that's a time here. There's no hint of that. Uh, but we, we see this must have been a very difficult thing for Jeremiah to do. He says, they shall die gruesome deaths, verse 4, they shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Eternal, do not enter the house of mourning, where there's uh, someone has died, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Eternal, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Now, this was not the state when this was given. In other words, when this command was given to Jeremiah, uh, they had relative peace during the days of Josiah and so forth. It wasn't till later, but he's saying the time is coming when they won't even bury the corpses. And the siege of Jerusalem was an awful, terrible thing. Verse 7, Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother, even for family members, mothers and fathers. It would be so awful that they're so distracted with everything else and their own troubles that they wouldn't even mourn for their mother and father. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting. So, again, this was a time when there still was feasting. And he says, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the eternal of hosts, or yes, uh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride. He was going to take those things away from uh, Judah at that time. So he gave him certain things that he was not to do. And you can read the remainder of the chapter. But those were instructions that uh, he was not to, to go out and do, to get married, to have children, to enter into feasting or mourning, uh, because of what was coming in the future. As we can imagine, God's message through Jeremiah was not a popular message. In fact, there's a word in the English language, a, a Jeremiah, which means a, a kind of a, a negative message, a woe is, you know, woe is, is the world. Uh, you can look the word up, but it, it has a, a negative connotation of, of a prophet who is always giving bad news as the world would see it. And yet there's good news as well. Uh, Mr. Ames likes to call it, uh, forget what it was, not uh, bad news, but uh, uh, a warning that Jeremiah was giving. He was giving a warning, but it came across to them as a bad warning. They didn't like it. So he had a, a message that was not going to be popular. Now let's notice in the 11th chapter, he's still relatively young here probably at this point in time. And uh, verse 18, 
It, it breaks into a thought that's very interesting. It, it's, it's as though it's out of the clear blue sky, which, by the way, in verse 17 talks about the house of Israel and the house of Judah there. Again, showing that both houses are involved. But in verse 18 it says, Now the Eternal gave me knowledge of it. Knowledge of what? We have to read on to understand what was revealed to him. Now, Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. Showed me their doings. There's something going on here. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. So what we find here is there was a plot by certain individuals to cut him off from the land of the living, in other words, to assassinate him. Uh, they didn't like him. They didn't like the message that he had for them. And we've skipped over a lot of the messages that he, he gave them, but they were pretty powerful messages. And he condemned them for their sins and their way of life. And people don't like that. They want to be told smooth things, not things that are... That are uh, going to point the finger at them as being as sinners. And so it says, But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. So this was a very shocking thing. It was revealed to Jeremiah that there was a plot to destroy his life. And so his prayer is, Well, God, cut them off. <laughs> Let, uh, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. In other words, I, I'm your servant. Bring your wrath upon them. Verse 21, Therefore thus says the Eternal, concerning the men of Anathoth. Well, what was that? That was his hometown. His hometown. Who seek your life. It was people that he saw in his town. And they were seeking his life. It wasn't somebody way off someplace. It was right there. Who seek your life saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men and the uh, men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. So he says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. When the time is right, they're going to suffer for their, for their sins, for their threats against you. And then in chapter 12, chapter 12, it says, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. I have a little bit of a problem here, God. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? They seem to be getting along just fine. It's those that are not your people, not the ones who are serving you, who seem to have everything going for them. They're rich, they're fat, they're happy, they're, uh, you know, having parties and so forth. Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. 
near in their mouth. And we see that in our world today. People talk about the Lord and all that he's done, and yet, in too many cases, that's not the way that they live. And, you know, sadly, we could say the same thing even amongst some of us. Maybe not here, I don't know, but in the church as a whole, I know that every once in a while we find that people are not living up to the biblical standards. And there are those who have God near in their mouth, but he's far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me, verse 3. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there. Because they said, he will not see our final end. Now this is Jeremiah, and he's perhaps feeling a little sorry for himself. And he's comparing himself with the world, and he's not, he's beginning to lose a little bit of the big picture. Because of the the stress of those who are persecuting him, of plots against his life, and so forth. And so God says to him, verse 5, If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? In other words, when times are good, if you can't handle it, how are you going to handle it when times get rough? You know, we've really not suffered persecution as such as a church. Uh, yes, they, you know, uh, censor or ban a particular program down in New Zealand or someplace else. they very uncomfortable with certain things, uh, showing that there is right and wrong. I think it was Mr. Smith's program uh, about right and wrong. They, they couldn't stand that. They couldn't stand Mr. Uh, McNair's program on Dunkirk because he didn't mention global warming when he talked about climate, not climate change, but talked about the weather at Dunkirk. You know, silly stuff like that. I I think we get frustrated by it. I know I certainly do because I'm thinking, what are these, a bunch of wimps that they can't stand the truth of anything? But at least that's, you know, they're not throwing rocks at us. Uh, Right now, we have it really pretty good. And so he says, if you can't run with the footmen and they've worried you, how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, see, it was still peaceable at that point in time, in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? How are you going to do when the enemy comes in like a flood and when times really get rough? The analogy of of the Jordan flooding and and, uh, going way beyond its banks and so forth. And then he says, you think it's bad that the men of Anathoth want to kill you? He says, verse 6, for even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. Hypocritical words. They tell him one thing, but behind his back, they are plotting against him, even his own brothers, his own family. You know, the New Testament, Jesus said, uh, don't think I come to bring peace, but a sword. And he talks about how family members will be at odds with one another. And I think most of us have experienced that to a, a certain degree when we came into the truth and we stopped doing certain things that that our families did 
you know, we changed the day we worshipped on. We stopped eating certain kinds of food. Uh, they had a hard time with that. Uh, usually our neighbors who don't know us, especially if we moved in a new area, they, they can accept us for what we are, but it's the people who know us that don't want us to change. And that's a little bit of what uh, Dr. Scott was talking about here in the sermonette. It makes it difficult. People don't want us to change. And yet that's what we must do if we're going to serve God and, and trust and, and be close to God. So the men of Anathoth threatened to kill Jeremiah, his own brothers. And then we can read over in the 18th chapter of Jeremiah... Jeremiah 18 and verse 18, he says, Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. We'll wage war against him in a public relations campaign. We'll tell the story the way that we want it to be. Nothing new about fake news. Been around a long time. And here, you know, it's, uh, you know, everybody, you know, when it gets to politics, each side has their own story the way that they want to tell it. And the casualty is certainly truth. In fact, they say the first casualty of war is truth. And we're at war amongst ourselves, fighting amongst ourselves, at least in this country, and not just this country, other countries as well. So let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest. Well, the, the law had perished from the priest, nor counsel from the wise. They're fooling themselves, just as there are clergymen today who promote homosexuality, transvestitism, all these perversions, and say that the Bible doesn't say, the Bible doesn't condemn it. Well, they haven't read the Bible, or they've read it the way they want it to be read. They haven't taken it for what it actually says. And so they're saying, oh, we're, we're, we're following the Word of God. But let us attack him with the tongue. And let, us give, let us not give heed to any of his words. Verse 19, it says, Give heed to me, O Lord, or O Eternal, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them. In other words, he had tried to speak to God in a positive way for his people, to turn away your wrath from them. No doubt he prayed that his nation would turn. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine. They, they've totally rejected everything, and they're plotting against my life, and they're trying to uh, destroy me with their words. Deliver their children up to the, or to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses. Uh, when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, suddenly, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. 
They're trying to destroy me in every way that they can. And so Jeremiah, in a sense, lashed out. That was his prayer. Those were his thoughts. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Now, we can say, well, Jeremiah sounded pretty carnal there. Uh, He didn't say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, But I think we have to see in the context of the time. And we're reading the, the inner thoughts of this man. And how many times do we think, Thoughts like that. Uh, We probably haven't had the same persecution. I don't think most of us have. And so we we may not think quite the same way. But when real persecution comes, then we'll just see how how truly converted each one of us may be in our thinking and our thoughts. The 19th chapter uh, gives God's message uh, through Jeremiah what he was kind of a summation of his message to the people. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. And say, verse 3, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle, because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have buried in, uh, burned incense in it to other gods, whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. So that's Kind of what he he was saying here. I'm not going to read every part of it. But you can skip down verse 7. It says, I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat to the birds of the air, or the birds of heaven, and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and hissing. So his message was not very positive as the people would recognize it. They thought this was a terrible, this is a Jeremiah in, in terms of, of the very term uh, that we use there. So let's pick it up now in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Now Pasher, the son of Immer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord. Now notice it says, Pasher, the son of Immer, because we're going to read of uh, a couple other individuals with a similar name. Uh, Pasher sounds like a strange name to us, but, uh, you know, we have, you know, John. Well, Logan is the, the big name now, I think. That's, I keep running into Logans all over the place. So, uh, but, you know, you got Pasher and Pasher and Pasher, uh, as we shall see. But he is the son of Immer of the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, or the Eternal, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Those things that we read there in chapter 19, uh, there were other things he'd prophesied, but specifically is referring to that. Then Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet. He hit him. 
And he put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the eternal. The stocks, I, I, I don't know if that's like what we picture in colonial America, where you, know, you put your hands through and your feet and your head is there, or if it's stocks uh, in terms of a prison, but uh, it doesn't say in prison there, I don't believe. So it, it makes you wonder exactly what it's, what it's talking about. Um, but it says, verse 3, it happened on the next day that Pasher brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, the Lord has not called your name Pasher, but Magar Mesabib. So, uh, Jeremiah probably had a lot to think about when he was in stocks there. And God inspired him to name Pasher something else. And what it means is fear on every side. That's what it literally means, fear on every side. That's, that's your name. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its precious things, all the treasures of the king of Judah. I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. Let's continue verse uh, 7 or verse 6. It says, And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die. That was very specific toward this individual. And be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Verse 7, O Eternal, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted, Vengeance and plunder. Because the word of the eternal was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. So he was under a constant barrage of, of hatred, of lies, of accusations, uh, constantly. Now, it's easy for us to read that. But how, what would it be like when that's really the case? That's not been the case with us. Sure, we have our detractors. They have their hate blogs and that sort of thing out there, uh, which I don't pay much attention to. In fact, almost never, never look at them. Maybe somebody will tell me something that's on there because there's no need to. You know where it's coming from. You know what they're, uh, what they're going to do. They just, you know, put things out of context and tell lies. And some foolish people believe those things, but I think most of us are uh, smart enough to figure those things out. And then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. In other words, he was thinking in his own mind, okay, I'm going to stop preaching. I'm going to stop making mention of God. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not, for I heard many mocking. Fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. 
All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. We'll catch him in his words sooner or later. They were constantly out to destroy this young man. And, you know, when you stop and think about it, prophesying for 40 years and putting up with this, but especially in the early years when he had to kind of get used to it, when the kitchen was pretty hot at that time for him, it was a tough life. It wasn't easy. Let's go to the 38th chapter. Because it is, does get worse for Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 38, beginning in verse 1. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jucal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah. So we have a couple of Pashers here, but not the ones that are son of Immer. Uh, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying... So here's what he was telling people. Thus says the Eternal, He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be a prize to him, and he shall live. You see, this is going toward the, the end, uh, toward the fall of Jerusalem. And he's telling the people, look, give up. Go over to the enemy, and they'll treat you decently. Now, you think about it. What would it be like during the Second World War when Britain was under the gun and you had somebody preaching powerfully, loudly, give up, just give up to the Nazis? Now, there were people who were on that other side politically, but if you had somebody out there telling everybody just, you know, don't just give up, but, but go on over there. Just fly over there, take a boat over there, and, and hold your hands up. Give up. You'd be seen as a traitor. He says, this city shall surely be, uh, be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore, the princes said to the king, please let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city in the hands of all the people by speaking such words them. For this man does not seek the welfare of his people, but their harm. He was seen as a traitor, which is pretty tough when you think about it, uh, to, to have to, to say what he had to say because it would you would almost feel like a traitor in that way. But he knew who he served. Verse 5, Then Zedekiah the king said, Look, he's in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. Oh, yes, the king can do something against them. But they weren't. he wasn't a strong enough individual. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. So it must have been a long way down. They didn't just let him jump down. Or give him a ladder. They let him down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now we could do a lot of thinking about that. But we're not talking about a type of prison where there's a gate that they let you in. This is talking about dropping down a well, as it were. And there's no water, just mire. And if you've ever been in mud, uh, it tends to be cold Anyway, 
and especially if it's down in the ground because the temperature, 10 feet, 20 feet, it gets cooler as you go down. And this would have been a most uncomfortable place to be. And they wanted to kill him, and no doubt, I think, although you'd have to read it into it a little bit, but I think that probably they had in mind that he would just die there. We'll silence him. He's down there. He can't influence anybody, and we'll just leave him alone. Their desire to help him was not very good. They weren't treating him kindly. This was a death sentence for him in reality. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Then in verse 7, as so often God helps out at the bottom of the ninth, two men out, no balls and two strikes, and your weakest hitter up there, so to speak. That's when God intervenes. It says, Now Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, who was in the house, in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, so he had to find a time when he could go to the king. Or was this the same day? Was it another time? Probably the same day or very, very shortly afterward. He would not have survived very long down in the cold and in the muck and the, mur- you know, all the stuff that he was in. But uh, he was sitting at the gate and Eben Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. You see, this is getting very late in the fall of, of Jerusalem. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. Now, the fact that he had to take 30 men with him would indicate that they might be up for a fight. He didn't just say, go and, and get him out. Uh, he told him to take a, a group of men, 30 men, as support and go take him out of the dungeon. Zedekiah goes back and forth. I'm not going to read everything about Zedekiah, but you'll see that Zedekiah even privately talks to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah gives him good advice, but he doesn't have the courage to take that advice. And he does the opposite, and it costs him his eyesight and uh, the loss of his sons. But nevertheless, Abimelech, verse 11 took the men with him and went to the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits. I, I love the old King James Version. It says, under your arm holes. Uh, what's the difference? Pit, hole? <laughs> uh, it's just kind of a... I don't know, sometimes the old King James is so colorful. Uh, under the ropes, and Jeremiah did so. So to keep from getting road, uh, rope burn, he put uh, old rags underneath his arms, and they put the ropes underneath there, and they hoisted him out. Probably not a, even with the rags and so forth, probably not a very comfortable thing. 
And he did so, verse 13. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So he remained in the court of the prison, as we shall see to the very end. Now, the 39th chapter gives some information about Ebed-Melech. In fact, in chapter 39, we find the fall of Jerusalem. We read of that, verses 6 and 7, talking about the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah and so forth. They, they breached the city. But at, at some point in time, whether it was before or after that, the word of the Lord or the Eternal had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, so this obviously would seem to indicate before uh, the, the actual fall, uh, go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity, and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Eternal. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. So Ebed-Melech was a very courageous uh, Gentile. And he stepped up to the plate when nobody else did. But he had fear, as all of us would in that circumstance. But he, he was afraid of the, uh, the Babylonians and had no idea what they would do with him when they took the city. But God told him through his prophet Jeremiah that he would be delivered from those that he had been afraid. For I will surely deliver you, verse 18, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you because you have put your trust in me, says the Eternal. When I was writing my notes this morning, I, I, I just put a note there that his life is spared because of his courage. Uh, then I read it again and I thought, no, it doesn't say because of his courage. It says, because you have put your trust in me. Now, that would have taken courage, that's true. But the focus here is he put his trust in God. He didn't put his trust in man or anything else. And whether it was out of a fear of God, or whether it was out of absolute courage, we don't know, but I, I think we'd have to say that it would have taken courage to do what he did. You know, God provides help for his people in strange ways at different times. You look at, at Paul, when they were going to assassinate him, you know, 40 people decided that they were going to bind themselves in an oath, and it's Paul's nephew, I believe it is, that happens to overhear it and gets the information to Paul, who goes to the commander. God can use children. He, he can use someone who's not from our country, a Gentile, as it were. He can use anybody that he wants to. Sometimes salvation comes from the strangest places. Gamaliel was the one who spared Paul's life at, in an early time. Um, and not Paul, uh, it was Peter and John at that particular time. So we find that Ebed-Melech did what was right. He feared God. He trusted in God, and God spared his life. What would that be worth in a case like this? Now we come to an amazing prophecy. Let's go back to Jeremiah 32. 
And let's get the time setting of it. In Jeremiah 32, verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the city of Jerusalem fell in the eleventh year, in the fourth month, and then they went into captivity the fifth month. So this is sometime during the tenth year of Zedekiah. It doesn't tell us the exact month there, but the king of uh, Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison. So this is after he's been thrown in the dungeon, he's been brought out, and he's shut up in the court of the prison at that time. So let's then move over. Uh, well, let me read verse 3. It says, Rezedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. So we, we see that that's the reason he's in prison. He was put in a dungeon, and then he was spared that, but he's still shut up there because of uh, the words that he had given. Now let's go to Jeremiah 33, verse 1. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. Now, the point that I want to make here is that this is a time that is just before the fall of Jerusalem. It's within a year and four months. And it's, when I say within, it was probably a lot less than a year and four months. Because here's the second time the word of the Lord had come to him. And it just says the tenth year of Zedekiah. So was it the tenth year in the third month, the tenth year in the sixth month, the tenth year in the eighth month? We don't really know. How quickly did these visions come or this uh, word of the Lord come to Jeremiah? Did it come one day apart, the same day? Or was it a month or two apart? We, we don't know that. But the point is that time's going by, and the fall of, of Judah is coming very close. And so what he prophesies here suddenly becomes very, very profound. Let's notice verse 14. Or let's, let's go to verse 12, actually. Jeremiah 33, verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place which is desolate, Without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, and the cities of the lowland, and the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, and the places around Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hand of him who counts them, says the Eternal. This is good news for the future. This is prophetic of uh, the time after Christ's return. But notice verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And those days, and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. This is talking about Christ at his second coming. And those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now verse 17. 
For thus says the Eternal, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now, let's just stop right there and think for a moment. First of all, it's right before Zedekiah is killed. It was within a year and five months at the, the outside, but probably maybe half of that, if that much. In other words, Jeremiah is going to make a prophecy here that he's inspired to make from God that David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. But notice also the other important point here where it says throne of the house of Israel. The house of Israel. Now there are a few places in Scripture where it, it when it speaks of the house of Israel, it speaks in a broad context, uh, including Judah. But when it speaks of the house of Israel in this context, I think it's very clear because just... You know, a couple of verses earlier, in verse 14, he says, The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's very clear that he's speaking of the house of Israel. That David would never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, not the house of Judah, as had been done. Nor shall the priests of Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. You know, if, if there was ever a time that it looked like the kingly line of David was going to come to an end, this would have been it. There were other troubled times, but this was such a terrible time uh, in the city there, within certainly within a year and, and at the most a few months of the fall of Jerusalem. And yet the prophecy is that he would not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And he says... That uh, furthermore, the Levites would not lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. So they would not lack a man for that purpose. Now, where there was no temple, they didn't offer sacrifices. But even today, there are those who know who they are. The priestly line, they know. Uh, They've kept records in their, their families and they know who they are. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, verse 20, Thus says the Eternal, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers." As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And then he says, verse 23, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families... See, there's an emphasis in this chapter of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The two families which the Lord has chosen... He has also cast them off. He has also cast them off. Thus, they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before me. But thus says the Eternal: If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and will have mercy on them. In other words, what we're seeing here is that God is pointing out that there's going to be a transfer of the house of uh, David to the house of Israel. 
In other words, they would no longer be over the Jews, but they would be over the house of Israel right before the time had come. Now, how could this possibly be? Well, let's go back to Jeremiah 39, and we'll read where uh, the nation is, is, goes into captivity. In verse 1, it says, The ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. And then we read in verse 6, Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah, uh, the king of Babylon who killed all the nobles of Judah. So he killed all the sons and the nobles of, of Judah there. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So he saw his own sons killed before his eyes. Then his own eyes were put out, which the, the, the pain that would have been would be just horrendous physically and emotionally. And he was carried off, led by you know hand, so to speak, all the way to Babylon, where he eventually died. He could have been spared. If you read the whole story, you see that he had an opportunity. Jeremiah gave him good advice. In fact, he asked Jeremiah for advice. Jeremiah gave him advice, and he didn't take it. And the end result was an awful, terrible thing that happened to him. Now, in verse 11, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah and Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him. And do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. You know, Nebuchadnezzar obviously knew what was going on in the city. There have been people who did defect. Uh, Jeremiah was a name that the king knew. He knew who they, who he was. And so Nebuchadnezzar spares Jeremiah. So Nebuchadnezzar, verse uh, 13, the captain of the guard sent uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, band, uh, Rabsaris, and a couple other people, it's hard to pronounce their names, uh, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and commanded him, or committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Now what we find here is that this Gedaliah is the one that the king of Babylon appoints as governor over the land at that time. And that becomes an interesting story because in the 41st chapter, actually the 40th chapter toward the end of it, we see that there's a man by the name of Johanan, uh, verse 15, the son of Korea spoke secretly to Gedaliah and Mizpah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you? In other words, he said, This man is going to murder you. It's been noise abroad. This is what his intent is. And Gedaliah apparently was a bit naive. He was uh, probably a very good man in a lot of ways. But he, he said in verse uh, 16, Gedaliah, the son of uh, Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, You shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. No, you don't know Ishmael. He's not going to do that. 
Well, he did. He killed Gedaliah and various other ones. Let's pick it up now in verse 10. So Ishmael kills him, and he takes a number of the people that are there captive. It says, Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. So he took them captive, this Ishmael, but amongst them were the king's daughters. All the king's sons had been murdered before his very eyes. But this little statement here tells us something, tells us a great deal, that there were daughters of the king that had not been put to death. Now, Johanan and all the captives of the forces came along, and he rescued them, including the, the king's daughters. He rescued all of them. We read of that in... Um, uh, the remainder of the chapter here. Then in chapter 42, I'll just summarize this a little bit. Uh, Johanan and all the people seek God's advice. And they said, whatever the Lord says, whether it's good or whether it's bad, we're going to do it. Well, we know human nature, don't we? Because Jeremiah comes back in verse 7, it happened after 10 days. So God allowed 10 days to go by from the time they sought advice. And that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and basically he said, don't go down to Egypt. Now, looking at it from their perspective, they thought, you know, well, the, the governor that Nebuchadnezzar set up has been murdered, and, you know, yes, we rescued him and, and from the, the murder, but nevertheless, this is not very good. Maybe we better go down to Egypt. Maybe we better escape while we can still escape with our lives. And so they rejected Jeremiah's advice. He told them what would happen if they went down to Egypt, that they were all going to die down there. Chapter 43. They reject his counsel, first eight verses. And notice in verse uh, 5, Johanan the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, mentions them again, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So Jeremiah and Baruch and the king's daughters and all the people go down to Egypt even though Jeremiah said, don't do that. It's not the thing to do. He was, you know, the decision for the nation was not to go. But he, he went there with them. Uh, may have been forced, we don't know, but uh, he went down there with them. And this is where history kind of breaks off and thinks that that's, that's all that ever happened. Well, in chapter 44, because he said they were all going to die down there, in verse 11 it says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. And talks about how the curse and sword and famine and everything. 
verse 14, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive, lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return, bottom part of verse 14, none shall return except those who escape. In other words, there would be some that went down to Egypt who would escape. Now, history picks it up from here because we have various promises made to David and and so forth, and we see that even Jeremiah said that there would always be a ruler over the house of uh, house of Israel from the line of David. And history takes over and tells us that Irish legend has it that Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch came to the Emerald Island with princesses, some young women, in other words, with the king's daughters. And we can learn further that the descendants of one of those princesses sits today on the throne of England And her picture is found all around the world in the Commonwealth countries. You see it in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, elsewhere. One of the most well-known individuals in the entire world. Now, you can read more about this in the book booklet, uh, United States and Great Britain and Prophecy. It might be good to review that. From time to time, it's good to just be reminded of these facts. Because it's a remarkable story that we read here in the book of Jeremiah. When we read the prophets and other servants of God, we find that they had exciting but stressful lives. That's putting it pretty mildly, isn't it? Stressful lives. Hard to imagine what life would have been like to be one of them. Their own families rejected them and even plotted against them with their words and plotting to even kill them. But in the course of time, the value of their work became evident. Jeremiah, one man here. We read of the other prophets, but these are basically single individuals there. Uh, In the uh, course of time, the value of their work became evident. And such is the case of Jeremiah. And such will be the case of those who remain faithful to the work of God in today's end time. 